Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we get to hear from another legendary producer. We love the producer episodes, I know you guys do too. This time it is John Leckie. John Leckie is a name and a master who has been around for over 50 years. In fact, some of his early credits include albums like Pink Floyd's Metal and All Things Must Pass and uh, the Plastic Ono Band and all of these legendary albums. He's a part of that, but that's not, uh, that's not all. Eventually, he really starts making a name for himself with bands like Stone Roses. He does both Stone Roses albums. Human League, Simple Minds. These are, I tried to cover as much as I could. Bless his heart. He gave us two hours of his life to touch on as much as I could, and I couldn't even get to all of it. But here, I had to write some of these down. These are some of the people we talk about in here, or artists. Fela Kuti, Ornette Coleman, Stone Roses, Human League, Simple Minds, G Loves Jezebel, Spiritualized, The Verve, Ride, Pink Floyd, John Lennon, XTC, T-Rex, The Fall, Public Image Limited, Magazine, Radiohead, Elastica, Cast, Los Lobos. Those are just a, those are the mo, most of the bands we focus on, but there are others that get brought up all over the place in here. Like I said, George Harrison, The Laws, and many, many others. So bless his heart. He gave me so much of his time to just, we, as I love to do with producers, we just go right down the list, touch on all the bands, all the albums that I love and that I'm curious about, and bless his heart, John had plenty of stories for all of it. I really think you're gonna love this. He called me from his home in London. First and foremost, like I said, I'm overwhelmed by things that you've done that I could ask you about. But the thing that I want to ask mostly, I'm going to go back to 1972, because when I look at your resume, you worked on apparently a live Fela Kuti album. I don't know this album, but I love Fela, and I want to know, were you actually in the room with Fela Kuti? Yeah, of course I was. <laughs> well, when, when you're a tape op or you're a mixer or something, I don't know if you're uh, yeah. after the fact or you know what I mean? No, I, I was the tape op on the session. So when I started, at the 1972, so I started 
1970, like February uh-huh. 1970, uh, as a tape operator. You know, I wasn't like an assistant engineer. I didn't make tea or anything. My uh-huh. my official title was tape operator, which basically meant that you sat there in the room and you operated the tape. When some when the tape when someone said stop, you press the button. When someone said play, someone said record. No one else touched that tape machine because it was precious. You know, so I would that that's what the job was and. Actually, you never you never fixed headphones or changed microphones. You might help to tidy up at the end and all that kind of thing. And of course, you get you never touch the mixer. You know that was like the balance engineer, the engineer's job. So you sat at the back, you watched what was going on. You worked out. I always like to say I work out the power structure in the room because uh-huh. whoever's giving the orders is giving them to you. You know, you're you're right. and when someone says stop, and you're recording. Do you, do you want to say stop if the, uh, you know, is that guy empowered to say stop or do you keep running? Because very often someone says stop and you immediately stop and the guy in the studio says, what would you stop for? You know, that was great. So it's your <laughs> fault that you stopped, yes. you know. So very quickly you've got to suss out who's, what's going on in the room and what we used to say was be one step ahead ready to do anything, but also ready to go back two steps, you know, which often you did actually to go back four steps, you know, <laughs> but, yeah. um, yeah. So fella cootie, fantastic. Yeah. Um, I was the tape op and I think the first day there were two albums done that day on the Saturday. It was what's called aphrodisiac, which was in the studio like, which is the better album, I think. Tony Clark recorded that. Tony Clark was an engineer. He worked on the first Wings record. He worked before, he started 1966, 65 even. He was a bit older than me. Um, But Tony had been out to Nigeria and came back. He came back because all these artists were signed to EMI in Nigeria. The same with the Indian artist, Ravi Shankar, was signed to EMI, you know. so Tony had been out there and came back and said, man, you got to hear this. You got to hear Fella and Sonny Addy. And they were both Ooh. signed. Sonny Addy was signed by Chris Blackwell, Ireland. Yep. Yeah. And Fella was, you know, the, the yeah. what could you say, the prince, the king. Right. <laughs> um, so you worked on the Aphrodisiac album? 
Yeah, that was done on the Saturday, and on the Sunday it was um, live with Ginger Baker, live in the studio. That's the so, one. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, and wow. we invited an audience in, you know, to, to uh-huh. create a bit of a vibe Sunday afternoon, and... I was going to say, well, they were all black people, and I think they were. It was all black. It was the in- entire Nigerian population of West London you know, that turned up. And, you know, there was me, and there was no really uh, white people in the audience. You yeah, know, it was like yeah. Dusty engineers. And a guy called John Kurlander did that. For some reason, Tony didn't do it. And John, because I'd just started, John helped me out on the Thursday. And then the next day, John did the live recording tony wasn't there and i tape opt and whatever set it all up so Goodness. um and then we went to a club i can't remember when we went to the club whether it was the saturday night after recording all day we uh-huh. went down to this club in oxford street in london like soho and fella played they were meant to come on at nine o'clock i think they came on at two in the morning you know <laughs> everyone was and it was crazy Separate. but yeah it yeah. was a it was a great session because um, there were so many musicians in the yeah. studio for a start, you know, because I don't know how many people there are, maybe maybe 12 or even 14 Probably. or something. Probably. Does he talk directly to you or no offense at that point in your career? Are you sort of the low man on the totem pole? And so he talks to your, you know, oh, superiors. Yeah. yeah. I have no contribution whatsoever. As okay. I say, it's like stop, start, record, yes. play. That's it. Of course, you, you're you in the room, you're with people. Particularly when it's a big session, you you got to help out. You know, the, uh-huh. drummer, the drummer needs an ashtray. Or people's headphones aren't working. Yeah. Yeah. You've got 14 people. You've got 14 pairs of headphones. Out of 14, four of them are going to pack up. Six uh-huh. of them pack up. So you've got to have oh, a supply. And, you know... Yeah. Everyone, everyone's coming up uh, stealing cigarettes. Hey, you got, uh-huh. a, cigarette, you got a cigarette man or something. Yeah. Or, Where can I get a drink or something? Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. Those kind of things. Um, wow. Oh, so, my gosh. You know, all sessions were like, were like that. I believe this it. Was, this was quite a big one, and it was uh, a weekend and boom, and it was gone. Amazing. So similarly, also in 1972, I believe you work on, as a tape op on a Nornette Coleman album. What was that like? Because he's a trip too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, no, I'm sorry. That was a one morning session. You know, oh. sometimes I put these things on. doesn't mean to say I sat through the whole album. Sure. 
Okay. Uh, what it was was it was called Skies Across America or Skies yep. Over America, uh-huh. and the orchestral stuff was recorded in Abbey Road Studio too. Uh-huh. And I think it, I, I think it was a morning, like a three-hour session in the morning, three-hour session in the afternoon. Right at the end, Ornette Coleman came and played on the tracks. Yeah, he tried to. He put the headphones on, the orchestra had gone, and he yeah. played. And he had the black suit on, you know, the drape coat when he wore the black. The uh-huh. black. As, as soon as he walked in, I, I kind of knew it was him, you know. Oh, my god! He played a bit. I don't have much memory of that, but um, okay. it wasn't a whole album. It was a one-off sure. session. Most okay. of it most of it was the orchestral stuff, you know, with the uh-huh. big, big strings, sweeping strings and things. That album is very orchestral, and so that's why I was curious where your contributions would have come in. Um, I mean, I, in GOAT, there are so many iconic, and I don't throw that word around uh, lightly, but these people who are big personalities, historic personalities for doing important things, and you've been in the room and breathed the same air as so many of these people. I just wanted to throw those two out there especially. So, yeah. Let's you probably let's okay, so let's bounce back to something that you probably get asked about a lot. That's the Stone Rosens. Because that first album is was it's a bit a bit different to Warnett Coleman. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, and I've got a lot of everything. That's what I mean. You gotta go around and around. So Stone Roses, that first album, debut album, eighty nine, is declared by some the greatest album of all time. Uh, it's unlike anything that anyone's really ever hearing, or at least it's taking whatever Britain is doing at the time and perfecting it. And I'm curious what was different about Second Coming than the first one? Because my understanding is that John Squire comes in and is like, I want this basically to be like a guitar Led Zeppelin album. Tell me about the the difference between these two albums. Ah. Um, yeah, people write books about it. They do, they do, <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> um, well, the difference is, I mean, John Squire didn't actually come in and say, you know, I want this to be a guitar album and to show off my guitar playing. It wasn't like that at all. I mean, let's just say the first album was like a lot of bands' first albums. You know, it's the, the songs and the performance that they get the, the record deal on, you know. And maybe those songs they've been honing down for anything from five years, you know, or, or yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're worn into, they've been performed live, you know, they've mm-hmm. been tested. So often the first, everyone goes, first album's the best, you know, probably because of that. And then the second album, there's a bit more pressure to build it up. And certainly with the Stone Roses, there was yes. pressure to... Uh, to repeat the best album of all time and those kind of things. So the first record, yeah, was songs that they knew and we had a lot of fun doing it. I mean, there were great, great times and somehow we, we hit it off, you know, I was, I I was the producer and we had a good time and it was down to capturing the right take, the right performance of the song. Even Ian, because he's got a little bit of a reputation being kind of difficult, but you you were okay working with Ian? Yeah, okay. yeah, we were all on a, a common goal, which was yeah. to, to make the best record of all time. That was our our goal to head towards. You achieved it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And of course, I was doing other records. You know, it wasn't the first record I'd done. You know, I mean, yeah. by 
1988, I'd been producing for 12 years. You know, I'd probably done 20 or 30 albums or oh, so. Oh, yeah. I've got lots of those. Know, by that time. So <laughs> to them, it was a, and always, you know, often the most exciting thing is doing the band's first album because there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm and it's kind of fresh and they're really open to ideas and, and, you know, they're not kind of the second, third, whatever albums. It probably takes a few albums for them to shake off their first album kind of thing yeah. before they get comfortable doing another one. But the first albums definitely have all, have all the energy and that's, um, so what happens in those in the five years between the two? I'm imagining the pressure just keeps mounting and building and building. When is the Stone Roses ever going to come back and deliver another piece of genius? <laughs> and then when it does, it kind of it's okay album, but it falls. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. not the same. Um, yeah, <laughs> let's just say uh, the begin where, uh, the first album the band were together. I mean, they were. Uh, they weren't living together, but they more they were more or less living together. Hotels, touring, gigging, playing those songs each night and continuing. And then, as, as if you read the books, you know um, you'll see that there was uh, certain uh, legal management, record company things that kind of turned things upside down. There were court cases. The band, the band don't take no nonsense. You know, they don't, they, they don't want to be messed about. They can see when they're, someone's making a fool of them or someone's ripping them off and that kind of thing. Yeah. And it kind of grew and escalated. And there was a lot more money around, you know, I think when we did the first album on a Friday, the roadie would come in with a hundred quid, hundred pounds. And, you know, everyone would get their hundred pound cash out of that. They'd have to, you know, whatever, pay the rent, pay the mortgage, uh -huh. the baby, the girlfriend, you know, whatever their, their situations were, you know. Yeah. Um, so, and then suddenly there was potential for a lot more money. And, yeah. you know, the, the court cases happened, that stopped all the recording. So when I did a song called One Love, which was the follow-up to Fool's Gold, mm -hmm. that was officially the sessions to start the second album. Oh, really?
even though they only had two songs they only had one love and something's burning which was the b-side which we recorded at rockfield uh under the conditions of the paint job when they threw the paint over the record company do you know that story no uh-uh. and they bought out this one Ah, oh, <laughs> you haven't read the book. <laughs> no. Um, so, okay, Sally Cinnamon was a, a song, Red a song. recording that they'd made and re- released on, I can't remember the name, was it Revolution Records, a, re- a little record label in, uh, in Manchester. And they'd agreed to do a single, which was Sally Cinnamon and the B-side. It was released and sold before the album, before Silvertone and Zomba and before everything else. And they'd released it and had an agreement with this guy. And then when the album came out, my album and Fool's Gold came out, this guy re-released Sally Cinnamon from three or four years before and declared it the next single, you know, the follow-up single kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the band took them to court and said, you've got to stop it, you know. Mm -hmm. And he said, what's the problem? I've got a contract to to exploit the masters which was to sell the product i'd invested in they went to court and they lost you know and the 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 judge said sure you know it's quite legal you're you're selling your product that you have a contract that the band agreed to which was sally cinnamon and the band uh didn't want to be messed about and we were due we were due to start one love which was the second album at rockville uh-huh. studios and they were due to turn up you know they were actually due to turn up on the sunday evening and we would start on the monday because rockfield's uh in wales so it's a bit of a distance to get to you know mm-hmm. and um we, we were due to start sunday evening start recording monday the band never showed up monday went through monday passed there were no answer machines. There was no emails. There was no mobile phones. You you just phoned up the office, and if the phone kept ringing, then what uh-huh. can you do? Right. Those, those kind of things. You know, you couldn't contact them. Tuesday evening, uh, they turned up about nine o'clock, and f- we were just ready to go home. We'd kind of packed the gear up sure. after two days, and door opened, and the band fell in the room, covered in blue and white paint. 
And what they'd done, they'd gone back to this old record company, had an argument with the guy saying, you've got to stop doing this. And the guy objected and they bought tins of paint. It was emulsion paint. It wasn't oil paints, but decorating right. paint. You know. uh-huh. And they threw it all over him and threw it all over the office. Oh, no, I didn't know the story. Oh, yeah, the paint job. Yeah. <laughs> threw it all over the cars in the car park of the office. No and, way. Uh, the guy sued him, and it cost them something like forty thousand pounds, like fifty thousand yeah. dollars, for the damage they caused. There was no assault. There was no fighting assault charges. Sure. It was purely criminal damage that they yeah. directed. You know, poured paint all over him and his secretary and everything. <laughs> and what? they drove. They drove straight. And this is what they were planning on in the Monday and Tuesday before they came down. And um, drove straight to the studio and came in the studio, still dripping in paint on the on the carpet and everything. You know? <laughs> yeah, <it's Wild>. good <laughs> so wait, yeah, okay. So I, I, if I knew that story, I had forgotten about it. So what is the vibe then around Second Coming? Because are they just doing this? Are they into what they're doing, or are they like over it by that point? Is the chemistry yeah. so wrong because they never do it again? They're, they're always into what they're doing or okay. they're, yeah, they're always into what they're doing, but there wasn't the kind of bond. Mm. It wasn't happening naturally. And it was very difficult to get them in the room together to play. Yeah. I mean, that okay. first album is the band playing in the studio, you know, with overdubbing the vocals and the solos, but you basically, you start off with a yeah. band performance with a, a live performance, no click track, no drum machine, play the song, capture the best gig you've ever been to where they yeah. do it, you know, that yeah. kind of sound. And that's where you start, you know, you can always add things. And but if you haven't got that and you're always searching for the magic take mm-hmm. and the magic take is almost like, what's the word hypothetical because yes. all you've got is the drums or you don't have a bass line or the lyrics were there, you know, Ian got the, all the lyrics and he could sing the songs, but somehow the rest of the band weren't gelling. John Squire kind of, uh, kind of lost his confidence. Like wasn't, uh, he always wanted to work on things and he wasn't like, I need a few days to yeah. work on things. You know, yeah. you're sitting in a residential studio and there's the band, there's me, there's a programmer, there's a catering, and all you got to do is play and come up with it. And he'd need a few more days to work some, you know, work yeah. out some parts and that kind of thing, which you should have worked. And I would always want to cancel. I was saying, look, let's just take a week off, cancel the yeah. studio. We're finished Friday, come back, at, you know, in a month's time when you've done that. No, no, I need to be. I can't do it anywhere else except here, you know. So it was costing them a lot of money, but they didn't care because Geffen was paying, you know. Yeah, right. And ev- right. eventually, eventually, I got frustrated and I left. So we did, let's say we did um, two six-week sessions on the Rolling Stones mobile, which I recorded a lot. You know, it was it was a 24-track, 48-track, uh, two 24-tracks, quite uh, in a house uh, outside of Manchester because they didn't want to move outside of Manchester. They didn't want to associate themselves with any studio. Okay. So I said, fine, we'll get the Stones mobile and we'll just rent a house where we can make noise and play drums, and yeah. which we did. We did two six-week sessions doing that, Um and then we went to another place in um, 
in Berry, a, a town called Berry, which was a proper studio. Uh, and unfortunately, the accommodation was on the other side of Manchester. And the band don't start till six in the evening. So yeah. it's been two hours crossing Manchester in the rush hour <sighs> to get to the studio. And then they haven't had food. So by the time you kick off, it's midnight. Yeah. And then it's time to go home again. And <laughs> so I'd had enough of this and I took them to, we said they booked six weeks in Rockfield and I said, I'm not coming. And uh, anyway, I went up there. We had a go. They spent a year and two months. They spent 14 months from when I left trying to complete that album. Um, you know, it's good, but there was no, what can I say? There was no choice of produce. There was no producer making the choice. Yeah. Very often, yeah, I think sense. the producer's job is to choose the best take. Mm -hmm. You know, it's quite simple. It's not simple, but one of the main things when I've I've realised that what a producer does is that when the band stop playing and it all goes quiet, the producer is the one that says something, and um, and he, he he's the one that chooses the take. You know, with, right. with the band. You know, you're right. trying to get the best from you know the, the band and everything. Yeah. And anyway, that would okay. that, they couldn't choose between themselves how to do it, you know. That's and that's tricky. why it, it went on for a long time, and uh, a lot of people love it. I don't know anyone that says it's better than the first album. No, but, no, you know, it's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not, it's not a complete failure. It just didn't live up to the hype. No. Now, let me ask you about another band that you work with, who are sort of on the last legs, at least of that one permutation. That's Human League. I think you oh, did yeah. the Holiday 80 EP, right? Yeah. Yeah, at that point, it's still there's still Martin and and uh, Glenn who go on to do Heaven Seventeen. Adrian's there. Phil Oki, who would eventually take over, being boiled is on there. Shortly after that, they split, you know, and uh, the girls come in and Human League become a pop thing. And what was go? What was the dynamic like at that moment among well, those guys? It was it was tense, you know. I was only there, I think, for five days or so. It was it was really funny because I, I didn't really I've forgotten all about it for years, and it was suddenly like Human League. Yeah, I did that record. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was done in a little studio, their studio up in Sheffield. It was done on an eight track Ampex, and there were only seven tracks working. Mm. 
but that didn't matter because everything was generated by the Roland synth, the Roland 100M synth, which was kind of unstable. So, you know, it was all analog. And so it would all be set up with the rhythm and the claps and, and the bass line. So basically it was a triggered rhythm thing with the bass line. And then the synths, uh, the pads, as it were, were overdubbed. And the vocals were overdubbed, obviously, but the main, what do you say, band, you know, thing was coming from this Roland synth. Um, so once you got it, you know, the song all the way through with the arrangement, you would copy it to the tape on two tracks on stereo. You know, that was it. That was your thing. And then you'd dub everything else. Yeah. Phil was great. They, they were all, they were all really great. I, I can't remember much about it. Phil, I remember okay. when he, when he got to do the vocals was really good. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And then we, then I mixed it and that was it. And it came okay. out and there's all, there's all these different versions of being boiled. You know, there's, um, there's, I don't know, they put them on different albums and yeah. you know, if you go on YouTube and put being boiled in, there's about 10 out 10 <laughs> different versions. That's right. My version's yeah. the best. <laughs> it is the best one. Yeah. But I wondered if you were seeing attention between the guys like phil on one in one camp and martin yeah. and glenn on the other camp yeah okay don't remember don't remember glenn much but no martin yeah there was a lot of arguing going on okay martin's um, been on here by the way we talked about it a little bit but has I just he, wondered what you i've never met him since i've never oh, met really? him I, oh, it was all very um what can I say? I, I was probably more friendly with Phil, actually. I mean, I, we, really? it's really funny because we, I was staying in some cheap hotel on the other side of town, and I used to meet Phil at the bus stop, and we'd get the bus into the studio. Now, you've got to remember that Phil has got this very strange haircut. That's <laughs> right. very short one <laughs> this big thing over his face, you know. And we're getting the bus with all the shoppers, you know, at 10, 11 in the morning kind of thing. Uh -huh. you know? It's just like, <laughs> like old ladies with shopping bags. And, 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 and Phil would give I his, and he's got, that. the other thing is he's got an, he's got an earring with a feather, you know, a bird's <laughs> feather on here. And his hair goes over his, over this side of his yes. face onto his shoulder, you know, and uh, it's great. But yeah, he'd get, and it was great. I'd sit on this bus and, you know, it'd get crowded and he'd give his seat up to some old lady and uh. she'd look at his hair and go, ooh, look at him. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that would happen every morning. He was great. Uh. We had a lot of fun, actually. That's a, a great visual. I love them and I love him. I wish I could get him to talk to me. I don't think he does a lot of interviews, but he no, seems like a really good guy. I, I've only seen him once, but Martin's a bit more... Yes. Straightforward, a bit more sterner and a bit more, yeah. um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. It was probably a good balance between the two. but It kind of was, and they made some good music together, and then it needed to end, and they each needed to do what they did separately, and it yeah. makes sense, you know? Um, mm. Okay, when you were talking about books earlier, I want to, let's go to, I want to talk about Simple Minds, because that was one of the main motivators. I mean, I've loved so much of what you've done, and I've always had you on my wish list of people, but I read the book, um, themes of great cities that came out recently about yeah and, and graham yeah. the author has been on here and um so i thought i want to know you were there for that those first three albums which are each one is completely different and it's the blossoming of a band finding themselves and i'm wondering what that was like for you because that first album especially life in a day 
is a fun album, but every song you can point the reference. You can point the influence. Oh, that's your Velvet Underground song. That's your Kraftwerk song. That's your, you know, whatever. And then after that, they just blo- they get so weird, but it's gloriously weird. So tell <laughs> me about working with them. Well, yes, again, it's the first album with the songs that they got the deal with, the songs they'd written over probably a two or three, four or five year period. You know, they were yeah. the songs that they demoed and got, got the deal with. So... Uh, but I thought I captured that really well, what those songs you were, you know, and yes. that's who they that's who they were and where the Chelsea go and Things, yep. that's what they were doing you know and uh, Charlie would play the violin on Wasteland is it or something um, uh-huh. when we come to do the second album um, they just wanted to uh, they always felt disappointed with the first probably because it was very classic song structure you know they wanted right. to break away from that and it was also the time you know it was also 1979 I mean all this stuff was coming craft work and electronics things was coming out of Germany and um, the 60s were definitely over, you know, by yeah. 1979, you know, there was no, none of that 60s influence, you know, the, and dare I say, even the Beatles were taboo. I mean, the Beatles were, you know, in, in, in at that time, you know, from White Album onwards and the Let It Be, yeah. I know Let It Be now, but thank God we got that Let It Be video the recent stuff, the get back video, yes. it's not even called Let It Be, but yeah. for years we had to live with, you know, the Beatles were just shtum, you know, they were like, take that or wonder, you know, they, you yes. didn't listen, listen to the Beatles at that time. You know, you were listening to Can and Kraftwerk and, right. well, hey, African different music, influences. you know, different yes, things, very yeah, much different so. influences. Yeah. Um, and what we did on re- those real to real cacophony and empires and dance really because it, it went over quite a period was just exploring what uh, what was a song and what they could perform you know how you could uh, do different things it wasn't like oh let's make it sound different you know it wasn't like a quest to purposely be different it was it was kind of uh arrangements and instrumentation and charlie didn't want the i think charlie felt charlie the guitarist felt a bit threatened by mick mcneil on the keyboards because he had all this scope all this stuff that was being invented you know on on polyphonic uh synthesizers and creating never never heard before sounds Mm -hmm. and the guitar was still kind of a bit stuck in (sighs) 
what could you say, American blues or something, you know, still stuck, yeah. stuck with Buddy Guy or something. Well, no, Buddy Guy's great, I know, but sure. they were still stuck with that kind of thing. And so we're looking for the 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 difference, the German, I guess it came from the Kraftwerk thing, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Not Kraftwerk, but Can and Neu. Can and, and all that stuff, um, yeah. Yeah. A big, a big record we used to love was Dusseldorf, La Dusseldorf, um, which uh, I don't is, think I know that one. No, it, it's after Neu. What's it? Klaus Dinger, who was the drummer. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, Klaus Dinger and Michael Rother, and they were Neu. And Klaus Dinger was the crazy things. And it's funny, <laughs> Mal, um, Michael Rother said, "I took one acid trip." And uh, and uh, Klaus Dinger, he take ten thousand acid trips every day, every day for ten years. He take acid trip. I only take one, and I don't want any more. <laughs> so that's where they were at. And Dusseldorf yeah. was the guy who took the ten thousand acid trips. Oh, I get it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Empires and Dance is my favorite Simple Minds album. Um, it's the peak of that weird just hyper creative period and i'm wondering when you saw what they became after you and there was a moment there as you know when they were competing as one of the biggest bands in the world they're up there with you too and stuff mm -hmm. like that are you surprised by what you're seeing are you thinking there is no way that little band that i worked at you know in the 70s yeah. is now this yeah exactly really yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i did feel that yeah and i'll tell you one thing that the <laughs> silly thing that made me that when you said that that gave me that question was when i saw jim kerr on tv and charlie as well wearing blue jeans wearing levi jeans <laughs> because up till then they always wore black yeah. right it was always black uh -huh. clothes you know and then suddenly there's jim and charlie on tv in bloody levi jeans you know yes. denim jeans and i'm like why on earth are you wearing jeans on stage for you know? <laughs> <laughs> ever do that and that's kind of maybe that was as well with the music you know it was yeah. like i mean yeah they did develop great i mean jim's singing i mean when i worked with them jim was Jim was not the greatest singer, you know. I mean, he would—he he had the greatest attitude and the trying and uh, open to ideas, you know, trying different yeah. voices, you know, and those kind of thing. And yeah. he didn't really know what he was doing. It was, and then, you know, and suddenly, suddenly it came into place. And songwriting, you know, they knew verses and choruses. They want to break away from verses and choruses. Yeah. And of course, the record company just wanted choruses. They just yes. wanted an anthems, you know, choruses and things, you know. Yeah. And at the, at the time, there was all that stuff happening with uh, disco, you know, 12-inch versions. I know, and they're merging all of this together, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. And one of the things that came out really strongly in the book that I read was that Jim waits until the very, very last second to write any lyrics that's and right so a song will be done and in some cases like the song thing from great cities
I just talked to Steve Hillage recently too about mm. this. Um, he'll decide this is better as an as an instrumental. There's nothing I can bring lyrically. Yeah. But what was fascinating is that when he would put lyrics down, a lot of the time they didn't make any sense. But he's combining words that wouldn't normally go together, and with, by combining them, they create new ideas. They create yeah. new avenues to explore images images, images yeah. that's it yeah and no uh, i don't i mean omd did that a little bit but there it was just a and they've never done it since they've, no. they've tried to recapture some of that original creativity yeah. but they've never been able to go back there no 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 wow. well there you go they, they they've grown up or what's the word become mature it's maturity it. isn't it instead of being wild you know there's a certain yeah. stability in in that, that knowing what works and not not uh not not being not wanting to go out to the yeah the wild, the wild frontier kind right. of thing you know want to stay safe you know yeah what yeah. about derek because he is such an instrumental part of that original sound He's great. And i'm you of should... the opinion they've never been the same since he left Absolutely, yeah, I, yeah. I could agree with that. Okay. You should interview Derek. Derek's great. He'd love oh, to talk I've to you. I've tried. He'd love to. Times. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'll tell says, him. I'll tell him. Oh, please do. <laughs> he'll he'll say he'll do it, and then I say, "Great, let's." What about this day? And then I'll never hear from him again. And, oh. so, and we're <laughs> Facebook friends, and yes, if you could put oh, in yeah. a word, I love Derek. Yeah, um, yeah. No, he's he's great, great talker. Yeah, he's good. good. Okay. Now, um, I don't know why, but I'm on this dysfunction kick, so let's do it one more time. When you did the Gene Loves Jezebel album, Immigrant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting really obscure now. <laughs> well, that's no, probably Gene Loves Jezebel are huge in America, aren't they? Yeah. Well, they yeah. yeah. I've yeah. seen them both in concert. Jay has been on here. Oh, Michael yeah. was the last concert I saw before lockdown happened. Um, that album, Immigrant, is probably my favorite of theirs. It includes um, Always a Flame, which is my favorite Jane, Jean Loves Jezebel song. And as you know, those two cannot stand each other. And they just fight. And when I, it was interesting when Jay was on here, I thought, you know what? I'm going to give him a break. I'm going to ask him things that have nothing to do with his brother so that we don't even have to talk about that. But no matter what I asked, he it brought the back answer to <laughs> back to a fight with his brother, Michael. So <laughs> it's, you can't escape it. So what's it like working with the two of them at that moment? Did they get along? Yeah, it wasn't. It was well. Did they get along? It was all Michael's thing. Jay okay. Jay kept saying, "I'm not part of this record." You know, 
I'm not, I'm not going to be part of this record. And I'm like, well, why don't you sing? You're going to do the vacuum vocals. Yeah, yeah, I'll come and do the vacuum vocals. And then it's like, okay, it's time to do the back. Oh, Mike's going to do the backing vocals. You know, he'll, he'll sound better, you know. And it's like, are you going to do anything on this record? You know? <laughs> um, so, yeah. And I didn't, what can I say? I didn't know their previous, how they'd worked before, you know. Yeah. And it was... It was all kind of, we did it fairly quickly. I don't know how long, two weeks, three weeks or so. Um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, okay. there was a certain amount of tension, but I kind of accepted it as that was the way the band worked. You know, yeah. the other guys were good. Oh, I tell you one thing. We did rehearse with a drummer in Earl's Court in London and then the studio was actually way out in Herefordshire. It's kind of way out, you know, residential, so you get a house and that kind of thing. And when I got there, there was this other guy setting the drums up. I'm going, oh, what are you, are you, what's going on? He said, yeah, didn't they tell you um, Jay and Mike sacked the old drummer and they got me in? And I go, well, I've just been rehearsing with this other guy for two weeks, like the, the drummer. <laughs> and suddenly... And he was Chris Bell, Chris Bell, who played with them for, he's, he's a wonderful yeah. guy. Chris Bell is the drummer. And he'd, he was called in, and he hadn't heard the songs or demoed or rehearsed. He was called in to the studio to do the album, you know. No way. And basically it was me and him, you know, me and him and uh, I can't remember now, with the other guitarist, what's his name, Rizzo, is it? Is it? Uh, Rizzo? Yeah, Rizzo? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And we oh, would be wild. cutting the track. Yeah, it was crazy, but boom, at, at that time, it was just onwards, That's onwards, wild. do it, let, yes. onwards, you know. It's funny you say that because, as I mentioned, Always a Flame is my favorite song of theirs, and I yeah. love it because of the drums. And so oh, hearing this drum story is interesting. So there's always this, they just argue about, well, I contributed more than you did. No, I I did more than you did. Well, I was I wrote the better songs. No, I wrote the better songs. So mm. when when you were working with them, Jay was pretty checked out. That's mostly yeah. a Michael album. Yeah, I think so. Wow. Yeah, okay. I think so. Well, yeah. fascinating. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to ask you one more. I've I've got quite a list here. You're doing great. Thank you, John, for being so nice. Are you doing okay? That's all you, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm just going to get my drink here. I'm not on video. I yes. Think. No. I mean, you. No one's going <laughs> to see it. Drink whatever you want. <laughs> Do it. So what's okay. the time? What's the time where you are? It's It's one o'clock, is it? Yeah, no, it's twelve forty-two. My time. I'm oh, seven right. hours behind you. I'm in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Denver. I always wanted to go there. Never got no. there. Yeah, we love it here. <laughs> um, okay. One of my other. I know. I keep saying this. One of my other all-time favorite albums is one that you worked on i believe which is spiritualized ladies and gentlemen we're floating in space mm. uh what did you do on that album because it's one of the most unique <laughs> things exactly. ever created what did anyone do on that album i don't know that's why i had to ask <laughs> well uh, what can i say about that um it went on for I think we booked three weeks for me to mix it. So I never did any recording. Okay. I can't remember this is whether this is before, because I did a record. So Jason had got Dr. John playing. He'd gone to New York. Oh. Jason had kind of infinite budget, you know, like from the record company. He didn't, no one was controlling what he was spending. So he'd fly off to New York and book a studio and book Dr. John to come and 
play some piano on a 20 minute song you know it's not like a three minute song it's just uh -huh. Just play over this kind of two chords for 20 minutes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, he made friends with Doctor And then I did, uh, I actually produced a Dr. John record called Another Zone about oh, 1998. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's called Another Zone, Dr. John. Mostly done in in UK. Well, actually, half of it was done in Abbey Road, and the other half was done in New York with Dr. John's band. But in the UK, it was done with uh, Spiritualized. Um, Paul Weller did a couple of tracks. Supergrass did a couple of tracks. Yeah. What? How do um, I not know about this album? Yeah, oh my gosh! It's called Another Zone, Another okay. Zone, kind of thing. Okay. Um, yeah, and. And Spiritualized did a couple of tracks as well. And that's kind of how we met. And then there was this, I can't remember really, because it was all, and what else, what was also quite weird was I was working with The Verve, with Richard Ashcroft. They're on my list. All, at the, same, all at the same time. And there was Jason with um, Kate, with Richard and Kate and that kind of thing. So <sighs> there was a relationship thing going on between the two bands. Anyway. I, they asked me to, uh, Jason asked me to come in and mix and what can I say? We booked three weeks and I think we used six weeks in all. Oh. And, and then he went off to another studio to mix again and it went on for a long, long time anyway. Um, wow. And he would take bits of different producers' mixes and edit them together. So I've no idea what survived of what i did but <laughs> sections of yes. the long tracks you know there was the was it big cop bad cop there's a dr yeah. john thing good cop bad there. cop yeah, yeah.
yeah, there's yeah. um i love come together and um but uh, i think i'm in love yeah. or now i'm in love yeah and then there's that one song i'm blanking it what is it the informer the something that's just like six minutes of feedback of <laughs> noise yeah. and that's a track on the album you know there's no yeah, singing yeah. it's just chaos <laughs> I've never heard anything like it. I love that album. Okay. Yeah, it's good. It's a good one. Um, now, you mentioned The Verb. They were on my list, too. I love them. Um, I love... I thought they got better. That's not a knock on you. Storm in Heaven is a really good album, and then I think Northern Different Soul people. got even better, and then yeah, Urban Hymns yeah, got even better. Growing than that. up, yeah. Yes. And, um, in fact... Richard was... When, when we did Storm in Heaven, Richard was 19 years old, you know. Was he, he was really? Like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, they were all really young, and they were all on... Oh! Smoking and yes. ease and whatever. You can tell. When you go back there and see some of the interviews with them, they're space cases, you know. They're, <laughs> they're all just like... They've got these cherub kind of young dreamy kind of eyes faces and richard does all richard does all the talking you know he's yeah. on another planet you know <laughs> but at the time they were the only <clears throat> sorry <coughs> they were the only band that the verve were the only band that um or verve as they were called because the the came uh, the the came later <laughs> yeah <laughs> at the time there were there was when i worked with the first album there was this big hoo-ha because they had to change their name you know to verve uk or something you know because verve record label the the jazz record label objected to that them being called verve uh -huh. but they agreed to the verve okay <laughs> <laughs> which made it distinct from their business you know which uh -huh. was a bit weird but at uh -huh. the time there was a lot of Pressure to be called Verve UK, and it's right. Like, oh, we're not calling ourselves that, no. you know. <laughs> no, no. Um, but yeah, wow. they were okay. Just a bunch were, of spacey teenagers. Yeah, yeah. But they were the only band that I, what could I say, asked to record. The only band that really? I chased. Yeah, I'm very lucky because I've always found work where people have invited me to make records. They've always yeah. contacted me, and I've had those offers. And when I saw the Verve, they were the one band that it was like, oh my God, I've got to get these in. The really, studio. even as a bunch of teenagers, you saw. It. Yeah, yeah, the show, the the shows in those early days. You ask anyone that saw the Verve. Wow. Before Northern Northern Dream or something, you know, it was yeah. like really. Um, 
it was what can you say it was like a ballet or something i mean richard wow. the dynamic the dynamic was you know really quiet and really down and low you know and these yeah. are in like little 200 people in a club kind of thing a beery club and he could take it it was almost like holy you know he would take it uh -huh. down really quiet and then jump up and it would all explode and get deaf you know and it was like whoa no one's ever done this before you know and they, they play the same song all night you know they just come on and jam yeah. some riff and two hours later they they'd put the guitars oh. down and walk off you know and it oh, was like man. because when i did that storm in heaven the big thing was getting the songs down to three or four minutes I could see that. because yeah. you know they would play until you told them to stop you know you run yeah. out of tape you know it was tape in those days so you run out of tape or you had to like go uh, stop yeah. stop because they yeah. just go on forever Nick McCabe, yeah, Nick yeah. Nick McCabe, that's what I was trying to yeah. think of. So uh, he's an incredible guitarist. And uh, I have one story. I saw them in concert once. So I live in Colorado, but back then I was going to college at BYU in Utah. And a friend of mine and I did a road. They were going to play Red Rocks. You've probably uh -huh. heard of Red Rocks. Yeah. So my friend and I did a road trip driving from class to, to uh, Red Rocks to see the show. And we get to Red Rocks and there's nobody there. The place is empty. And um, it's like, how can this be? There's supposed to be a concert right now. And there's a few other people there who are having the same problem I am. And they said, no, it got moved to this other venue because Nick left the band. Uh huh. And so I saw it. We saw them later that night um, in a much smaller place, which is still a great place. It's the Fillmore. And, um, but Nick wasn't there. And there, and it was a there was to me anyway a noticeable difference in sound oh, without cool. his contribution, mm. you know. Mm. And then the next morning we stayed, we slept, we stayed, and I drove back and had to take a final the next day. So that's my Verve story. Was, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, it was just not the experience that I wanted because uh, he wasn't there. It was a shame. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Now, similarly, I wanted to ask you about Ride. Um, I'm actually seeing Ride this weekend with the Charlotte. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're a, out, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. They're on a, I, Great. I love both those bands a lot. Carnival <laughs> of Light. Similarly, there's a lot of like British bands at the time, late 80s, early 90s, 
bringing alternative rock and mixing it with the psychedelic of the old time and that's what i see when i hear that album what was it like working with ryan Let's say that record I did, Carnival of Light, is nothing like their other records, you know, That's at true. the time. You're right. Uh, because they came to me with uh, with those songs and they really wanted to work with me. And I, I, what can I say? I live out near Oxford. I just, I thought, hey, if I do this record, I don't have to go to London. I can just go and talk to Oxford <laughs> again. Anyway, that was... But no, I was I was really busy when I was doing. I can remember it was really like a quite intense time for me doing different things. But yeah, the songs they were trying to capture the what can you say the seventies. You know, they're trying to capture classic songs. You know, from the seventies, whether it was sixties, uh, it was kind of you can actually almost pinpoint the year, wasn't it? Nineteen seventy one, seventy two. They were trying to do with the guitars and things. And actually, when I, I have to say this about Ride, you know, at the time I worked with them, when I first met them, I knew they were going to split up. I, when I oh, walked into really? the rehearsal room, there was a tension between Andy and, and Mark, you know, two singers, two yeah. songwriters. They didn't really contribute. Mark, Mark is great. Mark will contribute with everything. Mark will be there every day, like being a part of it. He'd sit at the mixer like, well, you know, what's he was right up front line like with yeah. me. Whereas Andy would sit at the back or go home early, turn up late. He wouldn't sing on Mark's songs. There was obviously like something going on. Uh, lots of drummers fantastic he was good fun steve kind of wouldn't say anything you know i mean steve would kind of yeah sit, sit at the back and not really comment a lot you know or yeah. you could tell if he was unhappy or you could tell if he was happy you know yeah. you, and often like you look around the room you play a track you look around the room and you can tell by people's faces of where where they're at even though they're not speaking you know yeah. um so i could see there was an instability in the band and also there was something, what can I say? There was something about money as well, because they were signed to Sony. There was a few records in, I don't know what, what album, this fourth or fifth album. Sony yeah, so. was financing, Sony was paying me. We could do anything. We could, we were mixing at Abbey Road. We were doing, you know, going out to the Manor, you know, like residential studio for two or three weeks and, you know, hanging out. So it wasn't a lot of pressure into, 
we weren't on creation <laughs> like yes. you know you, you got three days to do the album you know in right. the cheap studio in the basement studio <laughs> kind of thing right. it was like lu- a bit luxury so yeah. that's why the record sounds like that you know okay. it's not it's not bashed out in three days with you know a load of uh, cheap equipment done on adats or something yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a proper thing done at abbey road you know it's so a, that's it's why it's like sounding that. record. I hear it. That's what they uh, wanted. And what did they do? They went off and did um, with George Draculis, didn't they? Uh, I uh, forget the song now. It's uh, the the um, one the album after that. I think was Tarantula. Yeah, right? and they did and the it whole just record. Completely thing. fell apart after all. Yeah, that. I wonder. Right. You know, I saw Ride a few years ago on their last reunion tour, and now they're doing this one with Charlatans. I, hearing all of this, it makes me wonder if they've reconciled or if. And it, no, I, not that I blame anyone, but like, there's a big paycheck involved if everyone can just get along on a tour. That's right. That's what they're doing. Yeah, and yeah. they do get along. It's great. I tell you, I went to the first gig in Oxford at the Zodiac when they'd reformed because uh-huh. at the time I'd always stay friendly with Mark. You see, I'd gone around to see him, and he'd got his what could I say? His girlfriend, his dog, his baby, okay. his new house, you know, uh-huh. his, his studio. He bought, he bought studio property. He's great. He's really great, Mark. Yeah. Um, I didn't know, as I say, I don't know Andy that well, uh-huh. but, um, you know, and all this coming up, uh, reforming the band with Andy leaving, uh, BDI and things, you know, Mark was kind of patient. Uh, I don't think the others cared quite so much. Maybe, maybe they did, but they were because Steve went off and worked in a shop. You know, worked at oh, IKEA, wow. I think, or oh, somewhere. Gosh, really? Like, no, really, yeah, oh. yeah. They had no money because Steve didn't write the songs. You know, I mean, yeah, whatever. True. You know, and creation. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they that that split was difficult for all of them. Mark continued making music and. Yeah. Um, and Andy did as well on a much bigger stage. Mark used to tell me, he said, once a year they have, I shouldn't say this way, Mark, Mark used to tell me they used to have accountants meetings. This was before they reformed. And they'd have an accountants meeting once a year. And Mark would kind of get the bus in, Steve uh-huh. would get the, and, and Loz would bicycle in. And Andy would turn up in a chauffeur driven car. Of course. He'd have a fucking chauffeur Rolls Royce parked (laughs) to get him back to London, you know, to get him to the airport for his private jet, you know. Yeah, well, those Oasis checks can cash, right? Yeah. Oh, that was was what it was like before they reformed, you know. Well, good for them. They deserve it. But they're great. The sound, the sound is just fantastic now. It is. And yeah. the, the way they do it all. And it's a unique thing for them because the vocals were never that great. They were always, I had a lot of problems with the vocals out of tune and sounding a bit limp. And it's like, come on, you know, yeah. Yeah. think sex pistols, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yeah. they're not like that, you know, <laughs> no, they're great. And, uh, I, I saw Mark solo on tour once too. And I, I root for them there. I'm really glad this, this tour with the charlatans is just the perfect mixture, you know, the perfect double bill. So I'm super, every, every, everyone that sees them is blown away. Yeah. It's like, Oh my God, I didn't realize you were that good. I know. (laughs) I totally agree. Okay. I got more along these lines, but well, let me ask one thing. The last few bands we've talked about, especially ride for, uh, spiritualized I'm imagining drugs everywhere. 
you can comment or not comment on that. But these are these are three bands, especially the first two, Spiritualized and Verb, that wore their drug intake on their sleeves. That's part of what their persona. Right? Making music to take drugs to, yeah. Yes. That's what they're saying. I'm guessing you saw a lot of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, but you know, it's not it's not like it's not out of order. No, no, I mean, no. That's I've true seen for it, rock and roll. You know, it, it's, it's no roll. different to the Beatles in Get Back, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have a joint, you have a spliff in the studio, you might have a beer or two. No, the worst thing in the studio is alcohol, actually, is drinking too much because people can't, you know, they can't do it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, being stoned or something, you know, it's it's all receptive or something. But as I say, the worst the worst thing is is the booze and the brandy and the whiskey yeah. people falling asleep and and slurring that. and just acting the fool, you know. Yeah. Alcohol's the worst. But yes, uh, drugs, but, you know, you can't perform if you, you know, that's, no. you can't perform if you're completely out of it. But let's say it was, you know, a little bit inspired and, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, there's a buzz level that those bands operate on, a frequency when they're yeah. arguably at their best. And so, yeah, I can see that. Okay. Same as same as the Beatles. Sure. There it's true for speaking I want to ask you about Pink Floyd. I imagine it's no different. So, my understanding is so let me tell you this. So we have some Patreon supporters and I tell them who I'm interviewing and they can, they can submit questions if they want. And for the most yeah. part, I've been inserting those questions into our conversation, but Philip Hopwood okay, specifically wants to know about the urban legend, whether it's true or not, about Sid Barrett showing up during the recording of Wish You Were Here as if no time has passed. He's there. Hey guys, what, what, time, what are we playing? What's going on? And uh, that David and Roger needed someone else to kind of shoo him away and they've already they've always regretted that that's that's the version of the story that we've heard were you there do you know what actually happened uh no i don't really i don't really know what happened but i can tell you what my experience of it was okay so in uh let's see in abbey road i kind of started off recording wish you were here because it was a new studio it was studio three at abbey road and they but they just re-equipped the studio with a neve mixer so they'd always had emi mixers and this kind of thing so they got this new studio the first uh, the first people in there was pink floyd doing wish you were here I, I started off, Brian Humphreys came in and took over, and I'd known the Floyd from for a few years with metal and different people. I'm in the other studio doing Roy Harper. Roy Harper, you may know, um, Dave Gilmore had played. I'd also done other things. I'd done, I'd tape-opped on, uh, on the second Sid Barrett album with Roger and Dave. I was going to um, ask you about that, too. Uh, yeah. At that time. You know, so that you was know just, Sid uh, a little bit. Uh, as much as you can know, Sid. Okay, yeah. that's what yeah. I was leading. I know, I know him. I don't think he knew me, okay. uh, as it were. You know, um, so um, we the the studio was a new studio. Brian Humphreys came in, took over. I was in the other studio with Roy Harper. Roy Harper uh sang have a cigar on wish you were here now there's only four there's only four songs on wish you were here mm -hmm. and roy sung one of them which was have a cigar which was right. basically because either they couldn't or they couldn't be bothered or they like really like roy's attempts and that's what's gone on the record anyway
so there was a closeness. We were down the corridor in Abbey Road kind of thing. And one of the things about the Pink Floyd is that they always had a a fridge with beers in at the back. Now you're talking Abbey Road here in a you know factory environment. There was no bar. There was no, you know, after six o'clock in the evening, you couldn't get a cup of tea. You know, you couldn't get a coffee even. You know, there was a, a machine and that was it. So, but the Floyd were well equipped with a little fridge with some cold beers and bowl of peanuts and even a little cocktail bar with some ice and that kind of thing. And so you could always, you know, if, well, you couldn't always, but I'd, I'd kind of nip into the studio at the back and take a beer out the fridge. Anyway, so I go in there and it's quite, it's quite dark. It's late, it's 11 o'clock in the evening or something. And it's quite dark. There's people in the room. There's quite a lot of people in the room for a Floyd session. You know, there's the band. Roger's out there singing. Dave's at the desk. How many people in the room? Probably six. There's Rhodey, Scott, um, different Pete Watts. I don't know if Pete Watts was there. Phil Phil Taylor was the was there. Um, you know the people. Brian Humphreys, Peter James, of course. Peter James was a tape op, and he he taped up on a lot of my stuff. He did Dark Side of the Moon, and he did Wish You Were Here. Uh, so Pete James, I knew the tape op really well. Um, anyway, so I go in and the tape stops, Roger's doing the vocal and I creep in at the back, the lights are low, you know, take a beer out the fridge, the tape stops, Roger goes, who's that? And there's, there's six or eight people in the room and Roger goes, who's that? And I go, it's only me, Roger, I'm just getting a beer, is that okay? You know, and he says, no, no, not you, that guy standing next to you. And I look there, and there's a guy in a, in a kind of white Mac with a bald head. Looks a bit grubby, I could say, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but he was with people. You know, there was, girl, there was women there and stuff. Okay. He was with people. He wasn't just a stranger or something. Yeah. And he said, not you, that, the, the guy standing next to you. And I looked around, and, and Dave said, you know, and there was a commotion in the room kind of thing. And I immediately left. You know, it was like, whoa, you know, I'm not, I'm not meant to be here kind of thing. Cause I was the, I was the intruder and I'd been caught out nicking the beer, stealing the beer. (laughs) Anyway, so I, I got out the room and a couple of moments later, Peter James, the tape op comes running out and he says, Hey John, yeah, guess who that was? That guy standing next to you was Sid Barrett. Did you see him? I'm going, no, that wasn't Sid, was it? You know, and we sat out in the in the um, reception area, and pretty soon after, I'd well, pretty soon, I can't remember pretty soon whether it was twenty minutes or whether it was ten minutes or an hour later. Right. But they all left. You know, all the people, the Floyd had thrown everyone out, and so suddenly the door opened and twelve people filed out, kind of thing. Uh, so when Sid was standing so next to you. You didn't recognize him, even no. though you had worked with him, you know, however long before. To a year or two, yeah, a year before, wow. months before. He yeah. had changed that much just in that time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had, whether he had a bald head or shaven head, um, I don't know. Okay. I mean, he certainly didn't have a head of hair, you know. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. And he was, he had a white Mac on. He was a bit overweight. He wasn't, uh-huh. you know. But well, Sid was were, always difficult to, uh, look, could I say, you, you couldn't really get eye contact with Sid. Okay. And you couldn't really get a response from him, really. Okay, you know? that was going to be my question. When you work on that solo album with him, 
Do you form a relationship? Does he seem fairly normal? Is he all there or no, it's no, no. Okay. No. So you saw the decline mentally. um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, you, you give him tea and you make sure he doesn't knock it over that kind of thing. You kind of make sure he's okay. And, you know, I mean, we're talking cigarettes and ashtray, really. Yeah. You've got an ashtray, yeah. Sid, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And okay. it's funny enough, i tell you one, because we started off talking about drugs. There's no drugs here. You know, there's no weed or... Really? No, there's no no spliffs going round or, huh. you know, there's no... There's a bit of... With the Floyd, it was a bit of booze, a few cocktails and a brand, you know, a, a whiskey or something. But it wasn't overdone. There was nothing like anything wow. like that you know huh. no i don't remember that it's funny because people often have asked me that i don't remember the floyd like smoking a joint or yeah. anything like that passing it around compared to other groups compared to other sure. things that went on the floyd were pretty together all the time huh. i think they were exhausted when you often see them when you see them in that uh, pompeii film they look really stoned and a couple of that period from metal but I don't remember them ever smoking a joint or get, it was exhaustion and tiredness really. Mm. And a little bit of, you know, drinking booze and stuff. I think they like the brandy and things, but yeah. the, the Remy, Remy brand, you know, quality. Okay. They're always like quality, the Floyd, you know, I can see that I they're impressed that. with quality. Yeah. It's food and drink, you know, uh, but I, I never saw that. drugs. I never saw drugs huh. with the Floyd at all. Maybe they kept it from me, but maybe, you know, compared to other bands, yeah. Um, metal has echoes on it, doesn't it? That's right. That's a fit, you know, that's a famous song that goes on for like 20, 30 minutes. Do you remember anything about the recording of that? Were you there? How many takes oh. they had to go through? Is it yeah. pieces to, of various takes come to get comp together? That's right. Yeah, it yeah. is. Okay. I don't remember the details, but yes, it was started on eight track and it was the band playing and they did have, I don't know if you know, they had, they called these pieces nothing. Um, mainly because I said, you know, they would record something and me being the tape op would say, what's this song called? And probably Nick Mason said, oh, nothing. So I'd write nothing. And then the, the, and then they do something else. And I'd say, I, I suppose this is nothing number two. And Nick Mason would go, yeah, that's nothing number two. And I think we got up to nothing 28 or something. You know, it's all there. Yeah. I think you, 
you can see that there that isn't there an edited version on YouTube or on the box. Oh, yeah, there's multiple. Yeah, they and they called it "Return of the Son of Nothing" <laughs> because every everything nothing had a title, and I called it "Nothing One, Nothing Two, Yeah, nothing. yeah, so on. Um, but yes, was it always it, intended to be that long, or did they just like pieces of songs and they pushed them together yeah. in the moment? Yeah. They had all they had all the ideas. They'd gone off and right. rehearsed. Really, I mean, they yeah. had these ideas that we. Uh, I, 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 if you look at the diary, you know, it would start with um, with all these different versions of nothing. You know, even one of these days was a nothing uh, had a nothing reference number, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and they were all joined together. In yeah. rehearsal, they weren't, and then they were recorded separately to get the best takes. You can almost tell the uh, the edit points are obvious. You know, in, in I'll have to listen to it again. And listen for the edit points now that yeah, I know for yeah. sure that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, that is what happened. Yeah. Okay, okay. And it was it was eight track at Abbey Road, and we filled uh -huh. up the eight tracks, and then we went to Air Studios. Uh, where they had 16 tracks. So the, at the time, the only studios in London were Air and Trident that had 16 track. Um, and we went to Air Studios uh, and, and copied the 8 track and then filled up. And then what was great for me is that Peter Baum was the engineer. I was the tape op. Uh -huh. And when we got to Air Studios, it was all different studio and mixer. And Peter Baum said to me, Oh, uh, you, uh, you carry on, John. I'm going back to Abbey Road. You, you can, you can handle this because, because uh, I was like 21 years old. I was keen uh -huh. and enthusiastic. I was plugging things in new studio, Oxford yeah. Circle. You know, right in the middle of London. You know, yeah. Um, and I engineered those uh, three or four weeks. It was just the Floyd <sighs> and me, and I did all the guitars, all the overdubs. Uh, one of these days with the bass, dung, 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 yeah. with the bass through the echo thing, recorded all that silly, like Seamus the dog, you know, that, <laughs> that was, that was um, Steve Marriott one Saturday morning, you know, Steve Marriott's dog. And, uh -huh. and Dave Gilmore came in with the dog, like an English collie, just a regular dog, really. <laughs> and he said, Hey, check this out. And when and he played the harmonica, and um, the dog started howling. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Quick, record it, you know. Yeah. And I recorded it. And then when the record came out, it's bloody, it's the last track of side one, isn't it? It's on the record. I Christ, Seamus the dog, you know. <laughs>
<laughs> Anything was fair game back then. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I mean, you know this. You've probably been asked it a ton. I was kind of, I didn't want to come out of the gate with it, but a couple of the first things you ever do are All Things Must Pass and Plastic Ono Band. Um, Bobby Whitlock was on here earlier uh, yeah, a couple months great. ago. And so we talked about All Things Must Pass, but tell me a story about either one both i don't care but what was especially about plastic ono band i mean everyone you know it's the walter it's the uh, janoff what's the first name of jan the scream the primal scream therapy and arthur that's the name of her. yes arthur janoff that's right yeah janoff, yeah. yeah that's who i'm trying to think of for this primal scream and this he's going through a lot of john is at the time What's the dynamic of John and Yoko and working on Plastic Ono Band at that time? Fantastic. I mean, they were really? they were in love. You know, yeah. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like John wasn't like edgy. He wasn't screaming. You know, okay. he'd only scream when he, he had to sing the song. You know, uh-huh. he wasn't like uh-huh. an angry or a crazy person. Yeah, it wasn't crazy. It was John and Yoko really being. Okay. It was a uh, say it's a family affair. You know, it yeah. was. There was Ringo there. There was Klaus. There was uh, John's, you know, John's best friends. You know, yeah. it was an album. It's interesting if you get the Plastic Ono book. You know, there's this quite a large book which um, which I've got. The book you were talking about the large book. Yeah. So Plastic Ono uh, band. I just get back into the the uh, yeah. Right. One of the things about. Um, Plastic Ono Band really is that it's 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 like a, a a story, a picture of the love affair between John and Yoko because there's okay. a lot of love there, and that pic, that 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 record, uh, as it's been repackaged and re-listened to fifty years later, you know, uh, with the book and everything, you realise that John did that with 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 his best friends, you know, yes. with Yoko and Ringo and Klaus as well. He had a lot of respect for Phil Spector. Phil wasn't there much. Phil McDonald was there, and Phil, you know, Phil McDonald was the engineer. He's he'd started with the White Album and the, and the Abbey Road album, and went on and worked, you know, for Apple and everything. So um, it was a good was, experience. Uh, he was a good part of it. It was a good team, you know. Yeah. And John just kept it kept it simple you know and it's funny because with this reissue box set I've got I've got up on the wall it actually it's a a drawing by Klaus and if you go to klausforman.com you can buy Klaus's drawings and they're fantastic you know and there's Klaus there's John showing Klaus the guitar and I always remember John's guitar because it was like a a dobro a national dobro which is uh, got a, a, a metal sounding uh-huh. board, and they did the they did the songs. He had all the songs, you know. It was like how to how to do it, really, how to do uh-huh. it, because you get versions of God uh, on acoustic guitar, you know, that was done on on um, on the piano there. Um, and I'm just trying to think of the. Was uh, mother on there, right? And yeah, uh, mother.
I found out and I I found out and some other things. Yeah. I was curious. So you did that one and all things must pass with George and you did uh, red rose speedway with Paul shortly after this. And I'm curious if you had to make another album right now with one of them as they were at that time, who would you most want to work with? <laughs> if that's too touchy, question. you can tell me. Well, it's a difficult one. I'm just going to go one, two, three. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's like I'd work with George because George, with with those musicians. I mean, I in a way I didn't realize, but years later I realized that I learned a lot from those sessions because of Phil Spector and having so many people in the room. You know, and yeah. you rehearse. Well, he didn't rehearse. I mean, he orchestrated it in the room with who were the musicians available. And um, uh-huh. and then I think of John's record, which is kind of stripped back and a bit more, uh, I was going to say punk rock, but it's not punk rock at all, right. really. Um, Do it yourself, DIY, maybe. Yeah. Kind of a spirit yeah. of looseness or something. Yeah. And Paul's... Um, well, Paul's just the greatest person in the world. You know, Is he? Okay. With Paul. Yeah. That's the perception, but he gets a little bit of criticism sometimes for like being all business, you know? Yeah. Where George and John like to have some fun, smoke yeah, a slip yeah. or whatever. Paul is like yeah. fo- super focused and he's kind of a taskmaster or whatever. Not always. Well, okay, I but wouldn't. he's so good yeah. that that's why we, we don't, we allow it. So I was just wondering yeah. what the vibe was like there too. What? Well, with Paul, I did um, I did uh, high, high, high. That yes. record, high, 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 which uh-huh. um, I've just seen in the Paul in the McCartney Legacy, which is this book that's about three inches thick. Have you seen that? And no. it's the McCartney Legacy, and it's everything Paul did from 1969 to 1974 or something. You know, um, oh man, and it's like what he had for breakfast you yes. know on these times these it's beatles like every- will never there is never going to be an end to information about the beatles that people want to hear it's fantastic i i yeah. you know i've in the last few years with these box sets you know i've made contact with beetle uh podcast people something about the beetle all these people that write books yeah. about and it's fantastic because there's there's so much love. Everyone's got a Beatles story, you know? Yeah, they do. And it's yeah. funny because since I've, you know, I thought, hey, I could do this. You know, I could get <laughs> get uh-huh. my get my friends. Everyone's got a Beatles story, you know? You just got to right. go, all you need is love to people. And that's they're right. like, oh, yeah, man. You know, yeah. what's it like? Hard day's night, you know, and that's those it. things. And, yeah. And it was, uh, it recharged me when I saw Paul doing, um, uh, Glastonbury Festival, you know, on the TV, and he kicked off first song, "Can't Buy Me Love," and it was just like I was, I was in tears, and I, I know. didn't know why, why I it know. was. That's like it was such an event, you know. Yes, it was. <laughs> I got. It's funny. About twenty years ago, he came through town. He came on tour, and my dad, who we weren't super super close, but I was living in the Bay Area, and he called me. He was living in Utah or Denver, and he called me and said. Um, I think uh, Paul McCartney's touring for, I think the last time I'm going to come out to the Bay area and let's you and me go see him in concert. And he's never done anything. And he, he died from COVID a couple of years ago. So he had never, this was totally unlike anything he's ever done, but we got tickets. We were completely in the nosebleeds. 
but I will never forget. And that was 20 years ago. And he's still touring now. Like, you know, like no time has passed. Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy to me. So, okay. I have an oddity question for you. Do you remember working on around the same time, a, uh, a duo called Lon and Derek Von Eaton. Yes. Okay. Because Lon has been on the podcast. Oh, yeah. I found he lives in Colorado, too, I think, somewhere. I don't even know if he's still alive. I just think, first of all, they put out one album called Brother that has the all-time worst album cover of the two of them shirtless. Black and white, yeah. Yeah. Yes, (laughs) black and white, shirtless, holding each other. Heaven knows my heart is there And I work and try my best To bring peace to everyone The way to help them change their ways The way to have them blessed Just let them hear our guitars and feel us singing And but they were signed to Apple, and George Harrison loved them, and they didn't amount to much. And I always think, boy, if that was my story, I'd be telling it all day. And they don't do that. So, what was it like working with them? Do you remember anything? Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I always wonder what happened to them and everything. <laughs> Spent a lot of time doing uh, sweet music. There was this song yeah. which was just like "My Sweet Lord," or it had yeah. all the elements of "All Things Must Pass." Yeah. Before all things must pass, in a way, it was almost like George. Uh, I think they. I, 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 am I right in saying that they turned up at Apple before George did all things must pass? Yes. Uh, yeah. They, George they, heard it them was. somewhere and wanted to produce that song. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Sweet music, and it's got Ringo on it, and the drum fill. And you hear it now, and it's like, oh my god, is this is this a Beatles song? You know. I know. <laughs> and yet they're this weird little. You know, footnote on in Beatles history, yeah, yeah. but it exists. It's crazy to me. And yeah. you were there. I wondered about. Yeah, that. yeah. We did a few things with um, with Phil McDonald, the engineer, and me. It was the the team really. It was a guy. Eddie Klein was uh, the kind of maintenance guy, although he sat in. He was only meant to be there to fix equipment if it went wrong but he would sit there and he ended up working with apple and he died a few years ago paul wrote a great obituary. he worked for paul for um 20 years 30 years he worked for paul you know but he was originally the the tech guy at abbey road and he was there so me phil mcdonald and eddie klein were like the team that did all that apple stuff um it was a you know try some buy some with uh, yeah. Phil, uh, Phil uh, Ronnie Spector sorry yeah, Spector. yeah. Um, and Did Phil you work went on off that and, first uh, James Taylor album 
No, no, that was Apple. Oh. That was Apple. So oh. I was only at Abbey Road, you see. Oh, uh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, Phil, Phil McDonald left and worked at Apple, and then Eddie left and okay. worked for Paul and stuff. Okay. But, Wild. Yeah. Lol and Derek Van Eaton, un, unsung, you know, the, that I record know. should be. I I've only, I've seen it on YouTube. I've never seen the record being released or anything. You know, no, uh, I found it in a old record store one day and didn't know what it was and was taken by the cover. And that led me down the rabbit hole of trying to find their whole story. And it's, yeah, it's crazy story. And, uh, yeah. anyway, um, okay. I wanted to ask you about XTC. Um, Specifically, I think probably the Dukes of Stratosphere stuff that you worked on because Dave Gregory was on here a few years ago and he was such a nice guy. It's one of our most downloaded episodes ever. And one thing that struck me from our conversation was that he was saying that that was probably the most fun they had was doing the Dukes of Stratosphere albums. And it occurred to me how little fun probably was actually going down in XTC otherwise because they wouldn't tour, you know, they're not going to go on tour together. Andy is a genius, but he's a little persnickety. He and Colin are kind of, you know, battling it out. And Dave is this really sweet man in the middle, just sort of like, what do you need me to do? I'll do it. And the Dukes was the one time that they were all sort of like, just letting it loose and having fun. That was the impression I got. That that's probably right. Yeah, that is yeah. that is right, really. Because whether that was um, whether that was the nature of the the project, really, you know, because all the songs are quite fun, and there's no there's no pressure on them to be XTC and to come up with a hit single. You know, it yes. was kind of not just be someone else, but there's no pressure to to be commercial or be be hip and what's happening. You know, it was all. Um, and it was incredibly creative, you know, it was incredibly, um, ideas were just, uh, just flowing and, you know, the music itself was just, ah, what about this? We, we yeah. can do this sound effects, you know, and those kind of things. Yeah. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, what can I say? Often people, often people ask me what was, what what's your favorite record that you produce yeah. and the Dukes of Stratosphere is that Because the memory, yeah, because the memory of the time of doing it and with them, because I mean, really, you go to you go to bed with a stomachache because you're laughing so much, you know. Because when, 
when Partridge and Moulding get together and they've got all these asides and things, uh-huh. and it's very, what can you say? It's very dry. Uh, it's very witty. It's very uh-huh. wise. It's very, it, you wouldn't understand it unless you'd gone down their little rabbit uh-huh. hole of, of traditional rock or someone's, uh-huh. you know, the way someone would act. Or They're great at impersonating people. You know, oh, Andy's really that. great at impersonating. He could do a Sting or, you know, name it, Brian Wilson or Sting. Or he could do a, he could do a Paul and then he'd do a John kind of thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, you know, they were, it was made for them. And that's why they did it. You know, huh. it was, it was great because everyone loves it. And I always, I always want to file it. Used to have those things in record stores, file under humor. Uh-huh. Or, you know, it was like a comedy record. And I was always amazed that, what can I say? XTC fans really loved it and took it as an XTC record. Yeah. Whereas to us, it was a comedy record. You know, it was like, it was like, well, this is, just an aside kind of thing and it uh, kind of really exploded and and virgin said getting quick do another one you know yeah. you've got to do another one you know and so we did that sonic sunspots you know yeah. which was the yeah. second album and then we were going to do it and then andy bailed out he said no that's that's the end of it the idea they did a few things but we were going to do like live at the cavern you know the dukes of stratosphere live at the cavern and the glitter years you know the the kind of stomp glitter like slave uh-huh. or something uh-huh. yeah <laughs> and it was pure it was pure spinal tap i think it was before spinal tap i don't know oh and, yeah it was yeah yeah and we had andy had all these ideas of doing different periods of this non-existent group you know so i mean, so you produced a couple their first two i think albums so you know what it's like working with the outfit that is going by the name XTC. Yeah. Why is it so different working with them when they're known as Dukes of Strasbourg? Is it just because the pressure's well, off? It's just different? Yeah. Yeah, the okay. pressure's off. The pressure's off to, to not come. The XTC always had a lot of pressure to come up with hit singles. Yeah, okay. You know, although we knew it, we know them and as an album, but, you know, they had... They had a good number of hit singles, Senses Working Overtime, yeah. you know, here in the UK they had, I mean, not mega top 10 no, singles, but, but top 20 singles. Plans for Nigel and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they were very much a, an album that band. Mm-hmm. And as the years went on, of course, they, they matured into that, you know, with yeah. lyrics and, uh, and the playing and stuff. Yeah. You know? Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I just find that period so interesting. Um, I want to ask you about, boy, I'm going over my list here. Now you did something with T-Rex. Is that right? You produced one single or something? <laughs> no, I didn't produce. <laughs> no, I engineered a, a day with, with T-Rex and what, what, how that came about. That's quite early. That's like mid seventies, early seventies oh, okay. or something. Okay. When uh, we have a program here called Top of the Pops, and it would come out on a Thursday, you know, and if you were on Top of the Pops, then you were guaranteed your, it was the only exposure on the BBC to go out to, you know, I don't know, 10 million people would watch it, you know, so you had to get on Top of the Pops. And, but the thing was, the Musicians Union at that time uh, had this law that you had to re-record your single 
you had to mime you could either play live it was this whole thing of keeping music live so you could either play live and top of the pops bbc didn't want to do that because what they were doing was promoting the actual record but the the the, the musicians union said you had to re-record your single and mime to it you see and very and you'd have and you'll do that and so when it was announced when you got the word on tuesday morning Mm-hmm. Uh, that you were going to do Top of the Pops on the Thursday or something. Uh, you had to get in the studio quick in one day. I think the BBC paid for it, you know, oh, okay. one day and re-record your single, you know, that might have taken you months to do, you know. <laughs> and, ver- and you'd have a musicians' union representative there who had to check that the musicians were all playing and it was happening you know and at the end you would swap the tapes of course you'd you'd do any old recording and at the end you would give them the real thing you know and that's what they were mime to anyway and so at abbey road every tuesday there was always a panic booking for uh-huh. top of the pops recording and it came up with t-rex i'll do it i'll do it i'll do it <laughs> and so basically we had to record a song called london boys Uh-huh. which I think David Bowie covered or something. It might be a different yes, song. I believe so, um, yes. And that was their top 20 single that they mimed to, and I re-recorded it with with Mark and, and the band oh. at 11, 11 o'clock in the morning. And by lunchtime, Mark went off for lunch, came back a bit drunk, oh. wanted to do the vocals, ordered some more bottles of wine, and basically... Last thing I remember is saying goodbye to him on the steps of Abbey Road, and it was daylight. You know, it was like five in the morning or something. It was the summer, and he had these big sunglasses on. And we we really hit it off because he was a friend of – because coming from Tyrannosaurus Rex and the folk Uh thing, he was a friend of Roy Harper. So when he found out out that I'd done – I don't know, five or six Roy Harper records. I was uh-huh. Roy's man, you know. He he loved me, you know. Um, yeah. And we got on great, you know, but he did drink a lot. Yes. And um, no, nothing else, nothing else. Okay. Didn't see anything okay. else. But okay. he was really cool. A lot of talk, a lot of chat, yes. you know. Um, 
And I remember saying goodbye to him on the steps of Abbey Road at five in the morning. The sun was coming up and he put on his sunglasses. And I went, they're nice sunglasses. And they were really big. I mean, we're talking, uh, what year is this? This must be like 75 or something. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And he had these really big aviator glasses, tortoiseshell thing. They're nice glasses. Hey, you can have them. And for years, I wore these glasses. I really? Got them. And there's pictures of me in these big like glasses oh! my wife always, go, always goes that's you with mark boland's glasses on. <laughs> i would put them in the, uh, like under glass in my <laughs> yeah. living room with a spotlight hanging on them that's right oh i love mark <laughs> um i read tony visconti's <laughs> book a few years ago and he talks of course in depth about bowie and boland you really get a sense but i mean mark what a great guy but also what a character and seemed to he mm. was a rock star sort of 24 7 it's oh yeah like, you know yeah, what yeah. i mean yeah 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 always on yeah and he looked he looked it as well you know he had the yeah. perm and the sure. silk clothes and you know yeah uh, i wouldn't okay. say he had i wouldn't say he had aftershave it was more like perfuming you know <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah probably wore off from whoever whatever bird he was with the night before you know oh no he was always with gloria he oh, was, was he she, okay good she I was wonder. there all the time she okay. was there all the time good for him that's great yeah, yeah. okay i want to ask you about another big personality mark uh marky smith of the fall you did a couple fall albums what Three, in actually. the world Three. Okay. What in the world is it like working with Marky Smith and the fall? It's basically him and just a bunch of random people usually. Right. Or were they more of a band at that point? Yeah. Yeah. They were more of a band. Yeah. Okay. They, they weren't random people. No, well, it was, I mean, isn't it famous for like hundreds of people have come in and out of the fall over the yeah. course of their history. So yeah. you get this impression that Mark's just grabbing whoever is at the pub. Like, want to come play on my next album? Go ahead. No, no, not like no, that. no, no. He'd, he'd only pick the best, <laughs> but his idea of the best may not be everyone else's idea. No, I mean with Mark, you're you'll never know what's going to happen. You know, if anyone uh -huh. was kind of what can you say in the present of like we're going to do this now, you know. Um, but he certainly wouldn't pick. He'd only pick great musicians, maybe musicians that he could control. You know. He wasn't into jazzers. He wasn't jazzers. I mean, he wasn't into show-off musicians. Yes, you know, a lot of he doodling, soloing. Yeah, per, yeah, no soloing. It was play the play the same thing. You know, play the same. Just keep playing that. Just keep playing that. Don't don't stop. You know, what'd you stop for? You know, don't change it. Just keep playing that. You know, yeah. and out of that, you know, like a mantra thing, you would you would get that. But no, Mark was. He was in in command of it, really. But he would often let things happen, you know, as well. Uh, you know, he he would let things happen around him. Um, but the band were rehearsed. You know, when I worked with them, they seemed to know what was going. I never went in the rehearsal room. Never did pre-production. You know, it was straight in the studio. And okay, what you got? First song. You know. Um, and they would switch from one song to the other uh, at, a, at a whim, really. They yeah. would do one thing and they oh, okay, let's do something else or something. Mark would always have words. He would never, he would never let them play and put his words on top. It would always, he would always be there with his piece of paper. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd have a, literally a carrier bag, you know, with, with 
bits of paper and then he'd pick them up and mm. he'd always have words and he always controlled the room really yeah i mean there was no no one in the band took precedence you know he, he would al- huh. he would always control what was going on yeah and when, which with the result that if he stopped like if he took a rest nothing would happen you know um so no we would always without him and it was yeah and it wasn't like he told people what to play he just expected them to play you know mm-hmm. probably like working with bob dylan really probably yeah, bob, after, you know yeah it was like if that. you're going to work with me you've got to be on my wavelength and, yeah. and you know like like with what i know from bob dylan but mark was yeah. a bit like that <laughs> okay. but, uh, yeah now he um you talk about people drinking in the in the studio that guy seems like the guy who was always drinking no yeah yeah he was yeah yeah yeah, okay. yeah. it seemed like it uh, alcoholic yeah whiskey yeah. whiskey vodka when it was something uh, like that, did you have to catch him at like there was a peak period where you, if you, you have to record him during this window, otherwise he's going to get drunk. Didn't matter. Didn't, okay. Didn't matter. Okay. okay. <laughs> I know, he's just matter. always Marky Smith. Yeah, That's yeah, it. yeah. It yeah. didn't matter. He'd never, he'd never be incapable. Mm-hmm. I mean, as it always, whether he was sober first thing in the morning or whether it was two o'clock in the morning, he'd always be capable of doing what he does, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and okay. you know and he would choose he would choose what's it's funny because i did i uh, the third record i did was, was called ben sinister there's a track there called mr pharmacist you might know mr pharmacist you know And we did a kind of podcast. It was actually an Abbey Road podcast, believe it or not, because someone found out that we'd done part of the record. Most of the record was done in Manchester and other studios, but we did go to Abbey Road for about three days and cut a few, cut a number of tracks. And Abbey Road wanted us to do an Abbey Road podcast about the four. And I was like, cool. oh, it was a bit weird. Yeah, it was cool. It was, we did it all and with Brits and uh, yeah. the, the, uh, Steve Hanley and people there, uh, you know, the band members, and we did it. And, um, and it was also the Twitter thing with, um, with, uh, um, uh, Tim Burgess. Tim That's Burgess. That's what I was going to say. Tim's thing. listening party. That's where yes. listening party. Yeah, yes. we did one of them. That's where it came about, and that's where. And one of the things was that 
we recorded when we went to Abbey Road. The reason to go to Abbey Road was to record live because I'd got in such a frustrated state with Mark and we had a keyboard player and stuff where he, I realized that when he did a take with the band playing and him singing or whatever, um, when he listened back, to him, that was the record. That was it finished. And all the overdubs, all the messing around and the, you know, the, the mixing, the keyboards, you know, all the whatever additions was irrelevant to Mark. And he'd, he'd let it all happen. And then he'd listen to the mix and go, sounds great, but take all the keyboards off, take all the backing vocals off. We don't want to hear Brits's guitar. We don't want no percussion. We don't want no tambourine. Take it all off. And I thought, well, hang on, why have we spent three or four days doing all this and discussing it if you don't want to hear it? And yeah. I realized what he wanted to hear was the first playback of when he'd recorded it. Oh. And I said, look, we're wasting our time here. Let's just go to a great studio, set the band up and record live onto two track, onto stereo. So there's no 24 track. There's no multi-track. It's straight down, like yeah. onto vinyl almost, yeah. you know, direct cut. We could have done it. Yeah. And then when it came to that Abbey Road podcast, I, t I said all that, you know, I said, uh, uh -huh. and the band were like, no, really? Really? <laughs> I said, yeah, don't you remember? You know, we recorded it. There's no overdubs on Mr. Yeah. Pharmacist. Exactly. What you, what you hear is what I heard coming out the speakers and you heard in the headphones. Oh and it was gosh. a straightforward stereo recording. Oh, my um, gosh. And Mark was dead happy because, listen back, that's it, that's it, that's the record. Yeah. Next song, oh. listen back, that's the record, you know. And that's the way wow. his head worked. And he loved yeah. that. He, you know, he loved yeah. that because you could move on, you know, yeah. move on. And do yeah, something just keep else. it simple. Amazing. Yeah. Um, what about John Lydon? You did the first PIL public image uh, yeah. single, right? So I've had people, several people on here have given, have told hilarious stories about John. Nick Lane tells the best uh, John mm. Lydon stories that I know of. But what was it like working with him? Was he just? Uh, I haven't. To be honest, I haven't got any John Lydon stories, really. Okay. I might have some Jar Wobble and Keith Levine stories, but uh, John was the best. John was, John was cool. You know, he seemed to respect me. We did the... We did the uh, the vocals and stuff, and we got the track down, you know, in uh -huh. that first day. But the rest, uh, the uh, Wobble, at that time, I mean, he's a sweet man now, Wobble. I, Wobble, I've seen him and everything. and, and But at that time, he was a crazy 18-year-old, um, you know, 
beer in the mixer yeah food you know yeah. uh, just generally abusive punk yeah. rocker really and wow. keith levine didn't trust anyone keith levine wanted his amp in the control room he wanted to see what i was doing and i'm like hey man you know you, this is what i'm doing do you want to do yeah. anything different you know i'm i'm here to help i'm here to you know you've you've asked me well of course, I was hired by the record company and not by them. You know, the record company wouldn't let them go in a studio without a responsible producer, which was yeah. me. Um, and so I, you know, I came up with that track, you know, and yeah. we did it in a day, you know, Oof. and it's Bill Price mixed it, but it's exactly like my rough mix. It's a different, uh, you know, and that's it. Um, wow. The drummer was great. Um, uh, Jim, I can't remember his other name. Jim, uh, the, the drummer was is Canadian, and he just came. You know, he auditioned. Yeah, you're yeah. a great drummer. Get in there. But wow. uh, the echo was, on that song and like reverb, it feels like it was done in a in a cavern or in a tunnel. It was. <laughs> yeah, it was okay. Done, it was done in a big studio, Advision. It was done in the large studio, and I'd always worked downstairs, and they phoned me up and said, "Can you?" go in with john's new band i said yeah love to where do you want to do it and i said add vision and uh, when i got there it was the big studio the you know the classical room so that's uh -huh. kind of why and of course i mic'd up the room with yeah. the bar bar, with the drums and things yeah and that's what we got you know and it, it worked but the band you know the band were hot the band had rehearsed you know and what you hear was probably take two take three you okay. know it wasn't a struggle yeah. It wasn't a struggle to, it might have been a struggle to set up and get the sounds and then, you know, Joel Wobble had his new bass gear. He had like five guitars and massive Ampeg amps and, uh -huh. you know, and it's like, which one do you want me to use? <laughs> I don't mind, just you pick one that you feel comfortable with, you know, yeah. and that kind of thing and uh -huh. everything too loud and, Keith Levine yeah. wanted his amp, his Fender Twin, in the control room so he could see what I'm doing. I'm, there's no way you can have a Fender amp cranked up to 11 in yeah. the control room, you know. Yeah, no kidding. Um, anyway. Uh, okay. So speaking of late great guitarists, let's talk about magazine for a minute and real life with John McGeeck. So uh, Richard Jobson was on here a couple of years ago. And, um, he's such a, he was a really nice guy too. And of course we talked about them with the armory show and McGeeck is one of those guys that I don't, he was sort of gone before time mm. caught up to tell the rest of us how amazing he was. Do you know mm. what I mean? Mm. He did. He was gone before that reputation got to mm. happen. What was it like working with John? Cause he's, he seems so ahead of his time and yeah. he seems like he was a, total strung out on drugs unfortunately no no not no. at that time okay good i never saw i never saw drugs or anything I, he was okay. never incapable because that's in what fact, did him in eventually wasn't it wasn't it a drug overdose or a alcohol anyway go ahead not Sorry. quite certain yeah no i never saw that he was always there what he was doing though i think he was doing an arts degree at university and he was torn between the band. So he only came down. He didn't hang about in the studio. You know, he'd come down to do his tracks. 
I don't think he was there at the mixing, you know, because he was always finishing off his arts degree and that kind of thing up in oh, Manchester. Interesting. Huh. So yeah, yeah, I never, he was a painter. I don't know. I haven't read his book cause there's a book out about. Yeah. Him, I haven't it? read that yeah. one either. I've read yeah, Richard's was, books, but I haven't read John's books. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was a painter. And, um, at that time, you know, I, I think he decided on the band, but he just really wanted to finish his degree at art, uh, art university. Um, okay. And so he wasn't really, he was involved, yeah, but he wasn't there all the time. He wasn't involved the way Dave, Dave Formula or Howard was or, or Barry, yeah. you know, they were, they were there all the time. And John would yeah. do his tracks and be gone in the morning, you know, that okay. kind of thing. So okay. I don't have a lot of... He didn't linger. Um, okay. No, Howard, he didn't though, linger. I mean... This is, I can't remember, was that the first album he did after leaving the Buzzcocks? Real yeah. Life? It yeah, was. Yeah. And yeah. Pete Shelley co-writes The Light Pours Out of Me, which is one of my favorite tracks. Howard had to, I'm guessing Howard came into this prog this uh, project very kind of focused on doing his own thing. I, I left this other band because I have a vision. I want things done a certain way, and this is the way that I want it done. Is yeah. that kind of what the vibe was? Uh, I don't think da Dave was, uh, sorry, I don't think Howard was, um, was, uh, controlling it in a sort of dictator way. Sure. You know, it wasn't like you're going to do it this way or he wasn't like on me doing this. You know, they were, again, they were rehearsed and when they came in the studio, they knew what they were going to do. They had the songs um, and it was down to me to, as I say, record them, get the best okay. performance, choose the best takes and offer suggestions with overdubs and those kind of things one of the driving forces was was Dave formula really with the keyboards yeah. it kind of okay. shows a bit because the, the record's a bit drenched in kind of keyboards and stuff yeah so he was he was kind of very much the driving thing and of course it was very different because after they changed the drummer and there was always this friction with the band and um i can't remember the drummer's name but the drummer was was quite good but you know he he wasn't jazzy, but he was a bit show off. 
Yeah, you know, I could see that. Um, I could see that. Which gave it a lot of color. You know, it gave a lot yeah. of color and and drive and that kind of thing. And then the next album, they went to was his name John Doyle, and he played like a drum machine. You know, at that time. Mm. Everyone wanted to sound like Kraftwerk. So yeah. if you had a drummer that played like drum machine, yeah, just like know, a machine. straight, never changed. You know, yeah. that was that was cool. But if you had someone that had a flamboyant sort of, I don't know, prog rock attitude, you know, yeah. I'm not going to say jazz, but they had a, a flamboyant sort of way of doing things, you know, a bit of a, you know. I can uh, see that. It wasn't something they wanted in the new wave, you know. Right. Um, okay. Only a couple, I, I've been saving Radiohead. I'll let you go here in a minute. You've been so gracious, John. This means so, so much to me. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about Radiohead. The Benz is my favorite Radiohead's album because it's the one that merges, you know, pop sensibilities with the beginnings of getting weird as you would, you know, as they did. And so the songs are there, but Mm. the, but it's also an ex- it's it's extending what we know of as like pop music or alternative rock. Tell me what it was like working with them at that time. I'm imagining just full of ideas, never stopping. Yeah, yeah. What I got to say is that the ideas were already there, so they okay. were they they'd rehearsed. You know, they rehearsed up thirty over thirty thirty six songs were all rehearsed oh, wow. and ready to go. You know. Uh-huh. Um, and their big thing when I came on board uh, was to do a follow-up to Creep, to follow up to their single. So they had they had a bit of success with Creep, and and the record company was like, get in there quick, and we need a follow-up right now. You know, we need a, a single now. So our brief from the record company was to go in the studio and do four A sides. You know. Uh, as as great as ever number one in america that's what we're, we're aiming for you know and then do some b-sides and in those days they used to do cd singles where mm-hmm. they'd have the a-side and the, you know the cd would have four tracks on and it would be three b-sides as it were and so they were desperate for b-sides you know to fill up these cd singles um and so while we're doing four hit A sides, we had to also do four, preferably six or eight B sides. And then if we've got some time left at the end, we can finish the album. <laughs> so this was kind of what the feeling was. Uh-huh. And so we made a short list. As I say, they had 36 songs. We went to the rehearsal room, all the A&R people, people flew in from Capitol to hear what their next single was going to be. And all the band wanted to do was play, was make an album. And they'd had so many songs and they they didn't know what was good or bad. You know, they didn't know what was a B-side or what was an A-side. So the start of the record was a bit uh, plagued by um, us deciding whether it was a B-side or an A-side kind of thing. Okay. And a lot of uh, paranoia from the band, like they're not good enough, you know. Yeah um these songs aren't good enough or we're not good enough there wasn't a friction within the band it was generally you know they there wasn't like i can't stand colin the bass player or you know or that drummer shit or something it was never like that you know it was always them and us was the band against the record company really i could see that the the poor management in between and me in between because you know i had to deliver these hit singles 
from a band that was didn't know what a hit single you know no one knew That's what it. a hit single That's was it. coming That's from it. radiohead you know and creep yes. of course was a mistake anyway you know it was a, you could say a fluke you know mm-hmm. the, the the guitar intro into that chorus was an anger kind of ad lib almost that that entry you know and it was all like loud choruses and quiet voices and that kind yeah. of thing um but no we did we did good and we honed you know we we spent seven weeks at rack studios nearly two months living in you know living there and everything seven days uh-huh. a week two months there and we recorded about 28 of those songs, 28, 29 of those songs, picked the four. I went off to mix the four. And then the band went off on tour and like went off to like Bangkok and did a, I don't know, went to, they played gigs in Dubai and Bangkok and Singapore and then Australia playing these songs, you know, and I was, I've still got postcards from them saying, oh. scrap, scrap everything. You know, it's all shit. You know, we're going to come back and re-record it all. And we did. And we ended up going to the Manor Studios, which was in Oxford. And they didn't want to go there because it uh-huh. was down the street. You know, it was Richard right. Branson's studio, you know. Yeah. Um, so we ended up going there because I was, that's where I was going. That's where I was working, you know, uh-huh. and I loved it. I just knew it inside out by myself, you know, there, so there's no yeah. Nigel Godrich. And so we re-recorded about four of the songs on the album, you know, we recorded mm-hmm. the Benz and I can't remember the others. And some we kept like just and, um, big plastic, plastic trees. Big yeah, plastic trees were, yeah. Yeah. It was all from the rack sessions, but uh-huh. I did go in and re-record a lot of it. Uh, we had that thing, my iron lung and, you uh-huh. know, out of all that talk about, uh, a commercial hit single, the first thing they release is my iron lung, which is the most <laughs> uncommercial song or record you've ever heard. It is. <laughs> It does have that same kind of like anger, scratchy guitar thing that Creep had. I wondered if maybe that was why. Yeah, they say that album seems like a band who's like, we're not doing that again. We're not going to do those Creep. We're not going to give you that Creep pop song that you want. We're on to something else. And the whole rest of their career proves that that's what they just, uh, that that's all they want to do. I just saw Tom. Uh, with his new band, The Smile, a couple oh, of yeah. months ago, yeah. it was yeah, great. Yeah. It was really good. But um, you know, they just don't—they don't stand still. 
They're just going to mm. go do whatever they want to do. And it's similar to Simple Minds when they become one of the biggest bands in the world and go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and everything like that. Would you have ever guessed after no. working on the bands? No. 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 No, I wouldn't. Uh, well, if it were, we're talking Radiohead, whether they would have ended yeah. up where they are doing music now. No, I wouldn't really. No. I, really, I wouldn't think, you know, I thought it was going to be guitars all the way. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I just realized is that what what's interesting is that it feels like the audience came to Radiohead, whereas Simple Minds went to the audience. You know That's what I'm right. saying? Simple yeah. Minds kind of catered to the big sound and the big music, whereas Radiohead did what they want and those people followed anyway. That's um, right. Okay, right, I yeah. just have a couple more to ask you about, and then I'll let you. I'll leave you alone. What did you do with Elastica? What did I do with Elastica? I mixed, uh, which ended up, I, th I don't know which ones, two or three songs on the album. I okay. mixed the whole album, and uh, they picked what were the best mixes done by okay. different people. Okay. So I just mixed with them. Took a long time. I'm not saying I'm not saying it was done in a day. You know, right. it was still a lot of faffing about. Uh, yeah. Faffing about meaning at that time, Elastica. I don't know if I should tell you this, but a lot of it is samples. They're samples of them. Looped. Well, connection so, is the wire song. You know, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But if you listen to it now, you can tell that it's it's all done in a Akai sampler, and so they would sample four bars, repeat chorus sample four bars add to the chorus and almost the whole record apart from the vocals would come out of this sampler Interesting. um and that's why it's got that sound you know and yeah. it was great it was done at emi publishing you know the original concept and recording and what you hear on that record was all done with an engineer what's his name mark waterman who mm. worked for the publishing company and okay. had a little studio he had the keys to the studio yes. And so, you know, they'd go to the pub or go see a gig and then at 11 o'clock, hey, come around the studio and do some tracks, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. how Elastica evolved. Uh, is great David Albarn around? Because there is a, there's a it, sort of an impression that they are, he's the Spengali of that. Well, band. he was with Justin, yeah. he was. I know he was romantically, but I wondered if he was, his Not thumb really. is really impressed on the no. creative focus of the music. No, no. Okay. no. Okay. I think I met him once. He came in once, but didn't play, didn't sing. Mm, okay. You know, enthused, he enthused, but I, yeah. he wasn't really part of it, no. Okay. 
Um, all right, one more. Uh, another one of my top 10, maybe even top five all-time favorite albums is the first Trash Can Sinatra's album, Kate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And uh, John's been on here, John Douglas. I've been trying. Oh, yeah. It's coming back out on vinyl and like a re. I keep oh, seeing yeah. all the posts about it, and I keep trying to get a hold of him to come back and talk to me about it, but I haven't heard back. But I just think that album is perfect. I love, I love everything they do. I've seen them in concert several times. Mm-hmm. I think they're special. Do you remember any? And that's their debut. Do you remember anything about working on that album? Uh, only that it was done up in Scotland at their own studio, Shabby which Road, called yeah. Shabby Road. That's <laughs> right, and it because it, it had a crossing outside. It was above a, a shop, like in the town centre, and outside was a, cr- <laughs> a crossing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why they called it Shabby Road. Um, I don't have much memories. It was it was it was good fun. You know, it okay. was laid down, and we you know played live good singing and everything again it was a uh, uh you could say a fight for a, a single you know it's yeah. funny with bands you know it's like you know you've got to have that radio play single you uh-huh. know if you, yeah. you're doing you might do 10 songs on an album but there's you've got to have one of them that you're gonna uh-huh. you're gonna use to promote the others kind of thing right. and okay. a lot of bands kind of don't see that and you know maybe trash cans and archers and different bands i talk to you know mm-hmm. i've realized over the years you've got to have that one yeah a three minute two minute 50 yes <laughs> glimpse glimpse of what the band's all about like put it all into that it's a bit like nowadays it's all got to be done on a 15 second tiktok it's or true something. it's true oh my gosh get it's it true. all in in the first 15 seconds you know Okay, I'm going to throw uh, names at you. You tell me if there's a story in any of these. Star Sailor, Long Wave, Cast... (laughs)
Cast. I start with cast. Yeah. Yes. Cast please. is John. John Power was uh, the bass player of the Lars, and I actually did five tracks with the Lars before the Stone Roses back in I don't know '86 or something. When the, I was one of five other producers, and so with the Lars, you know, you you start off with. Uh, I don't know, um, uh, Bob Andrews, who worked for Stiff Records, and then Mike Hedges, who did loads of stuff. We all made the album, you know, I Uh did it. And then Ed, Steve Lillywhite was the last person before they ran out of money. He's been on here, and we talked about that album in depth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Steve, Steve was the last one, and he got the record, you know. It was like, okay, the money's run out, let's just release that, you know. (laughs) I met John there and uh, Cass, and then we, uh, and then he said, "I've got this new band assigned to Polydor. Let's get in." I got these great songs, and yeah. they were. And what's interesting with Cast is, in the UK, um, I think we had four out of two albums. So, with a record company, a producer, you know, the record company expects the producer to deliver four singles for uh-huh. every album, and sure enough. Uh, the first cut we out of the two albums we had four top ten singles and four top twenty singles. So oh. of, we had eight eight records there that were all top twenty. Of that, uh-huh. four of them were top ten in the UK. So we did great, really. Yes. And I, they're really great people, and I love them. We're really close still, uh-huh. you know. I think with all of them, with Skin who went off, you know, the band split up, and the phone rings, and it was Robert Plant. Hey, I hear your band split up. You know, do you want to come and audition for oh. me? You know, and so he ended up playing with Robert Plant for like fifteen years, I think. Oh my gosh! Um, Wasn't all just, change like the most successful debut album in history yeah. or something there for a while? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone loved it. Yeah, it was yeah. great. I uh, I was on it. I used to live in Cambridge, England, in the early '90s, and um, I've gone oh, yeah. back a few times. And I went back around the time that that album came out, and you couldn't. It wasn't readily available in the states, so I bought it while I was there. Oh, yeah. And uh, I love the song "Sandstorm" and a bunch of the other oh, ones. Yeah. But they never, as you know, they never made a dent over here. In fact, uh, I mean that's uh, true for a lot of the bands that we're talking about here. Yeah, you know? I know. <laughs> they're gigantic over there, but they, you know, little yeah. trickles here and there for a lot yeah, of these. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Did you get ever get approached? I know there's a couple of Americans on here, but did you get approached very often from a couple of Americans? Um, we got Doctor John, Los Lobos, well, true, 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 true. and no, okay, My Morning so that, Jacket. That's okay. So Los Lobos, <laughs> My Morning Jacket. Cowboy Junkies, Let's Active, Posies. I have all of those on my list here, too. So there are some, but maybe it's just me who's dominated the conversation with British stuff. But um, did you feel like, were you in demand with um, with American bands very often? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love those logos, I by the way. I remember when Good Morning uh, on came on. That's great. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. On, yeah. On, 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 an honor to work with them, you know. Yes. I mean, like, yes. oh, my God, you know, drop everything. Yes. I'm going to do that, you know. Um, and, of course, they, they just jam it. You know, they don't have yes. words. Dayfield Dargo would just play, you know. You know, oh, you need yeah. to do some vocals, you know. Oh, yeah, well, let's do them, you know. <laughs> uh, I haven't They're got anything best. written, you know, and they just, just comes out, you know. I love them. <laughs> Yeah. I saw them on that tour at the Fillmore in San Francisco, and between every song, they would tune up for like five minutes, and it would kind of stop the show dead. And he was like, "You guys, 
we tune because we love. And uh, I've never thought, I've never forgotten that. You know, they were just so into their into their instrumentation. And Caesar, and Caesar, Caesar would always introduce the song like uh, to the audience, yes. and he'd call the audience music lovers. Okay, okay, to, and now music lovers, we've got this other song, <laughs> and it made everyone feel, yeah, I'm a music yeah. lover. You know, it makes you feel really good to be yes. called a music lover. <laughs> yes, it know? does. Yes, it does. <laughs> That's great. Well, John, I could do this for hours more if you can't tell i still have like 12 people on my list i yeah. love so much of what you've done it has thank changed you. my life and made it so much better thank <laughs> you for all of it no, thank you thank you very much for asking me to do this you know I, I talk i talk for hours and we have done we have done <laughs> we got two hours in um yeah. so yes thank you for all the good work you've put in this world i appreciate Thanks. it so much all right there you have it john lecky what a guy man 50 years in the business, over 50 years, and the breadth of stuff that he's worked on, from Ornette Coleman and Fela Kuti to Pink Floyd, John Lennon, and then Spiritualized, and Radiohead, and the Stone Roses. It's crazy, everything this guy has done, and all of it's good. Some of my favorite music ever has, been, has passed through this guy's fingers. Thank you, John, for chatting with me. I wanted to close it out. Since we didn't get to talk as much about Los Lobos as I would have liked, he's obviously really proud of them, and I love that band. And so I wanted to close it out with one of the albums he worked on, Good Morning as Lime. This is the title track from that one. So, so, so good. Now, next week's guest is going to be, well, for the next couple of weeks, we're kind of diving into American punk rock. A melodic punk rock, not hardcore or anything, but punk at its roots. And next week is one of the front men of one of America's most beloved and just endearing little punk bands of all time. Uh, he's a nut, but a lovable nut. We love him. That's what's coming up next week. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man for everything. Thank you, buddy. Um, folks, you can like our Facebook page. You can send, a send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. I'm about to embark on what I think is probably going to be a little bit of a Twitter break, but I'm still going to post like the episodes and stuff like that. So you can find us on Twitter at the Hustle Pod. I don't know how responsive I'll be. We'll see. Just for my own mental health. And then the poor Yan, I think his schedule is pretty busy, but we've got a, a backlog now of bonus material. There's a, there's a deep dive we've got to get out. There's a couple of book clubs coming up. One's in the can, one's recording this week. So there's going to be a lot. Uh, we'll just, we'll get it out as soon as Yan can get it out. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you. There's a big fat part with a nail through the middle of this place that I call home. When I get lots, I don't even got a nickel. There's a piece of dirt I call my own. I gotta say one.